Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Before I introduce even our authors, um, the thing that sort of brings them together, uh, aside from being amazing authors, is that they're both published by a uh, uh, publisher called Two Dollar Radio, uh, which is a very cool small press. Um, if anyone ever reads anything online or um, in the New York Times about the publishing world, you kind of get this sense that all the big publishers are freaking out, and uh, so many of them are becoming sort of more and more homogenous, and all of these little presses are the ones who are doing really, really cool stuff that, um, that are not like everything else out there. And while you may not be able to buy one of these two books at Costco, who wants to buy their books at Costco anyway? Especially when you got a place like Skylight. So um, $2 Radio is amazing. It's very thrilling to have both of these authors here tonight. Um, we're going to start off with Grace Krilanovich, Um And she has been a McDowell Colony Fellow. She's finalist for the, I can't say it, the Stasharon Prize. Um, this is her novel, which she'll be reading from tonight, is the only novel to be excerpted twice in Black Clock, um, which is a, a literary magazine that we love here. So that's that's quite an, a distinction. Um, so you probably may have read a description. Her novel follows a band of slutty teenage hobo vampire junkies. Um, but one reviewer said, the horrors here are far more internal in nature. So uh, we've got a, com a complex, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what she decides to read and how that illuminates. So first and foremost, uh, we've got Grace Krilanovich. Come on up. Thanks. Thank you, Emily, for the introduction. And um, I'm really excited to read from this book. This is the first time I've read any of this stuff for like four years in front of people, so it's cool. Uh, <laughs> but I want to quickly just thank a couple people. Uh, first and foremost, $2 Radio, like Eric and Eliza, who couldn't be here tonight, but um, I was just so impressed with the whole experience of putting this book together, and they're, they're amazing. And then I also want to thank um, people who read early drafts over the years and gave me feedback and, um, you know, offered support, and that's Bruce Bauman, Sam Stern, Anthony Miller, Brian Charles, Jose Alvergay, and um, Nicole, kind of. <laughs> My hippie. Um, I want to thank Matt Brinkman for the artwork, and I want to thank my family and Scott for their support. And, um, uh, and then, oh, and then most of all, of course, Steve, who wrote like the best possible introduction an, an author could ever hope for for this book. And um, big thanks to Steve for that. So, uh, and thanks to Skylight for hosting the reading tonight, too. So, I'm just going to read just from the beginning of the book. Um, I don't think it needs very much introduction. Dislodged from family and self-knowledge and knowledge of your origins, you become free in the most sinister way. Some call it having a restless soul. That's a phrase usually reserved for ghosts, which is pretty apt. I believe that my eyes filter out things that are true. For better or worse, for good or merciless, I can't help but go through life with a selective view. 
My body does it without any conscious thought or decision. It's a problem only if you make it one. Safeway at sunrise. We storm through the doors. Totally wasted, we run for the back, behind the scenes. We barricade the door so Josh can menace the bag boy. What would happen if you harnessed the sexual energy of hobo junkie teens? The world would explode and settle on the surface of another planet in a brown paste is what? Cockroaches would lick it up and a new wave of narcissistic gypsy slut shitheads would hatch out of tiny pores on their backs. Hobos may fight for existence, righteous battles for the sap of tradition, the tramp code. Vampire hobo junkies, on the other hand, are reprehensible assholes who would rather whip your little sister raw than smoke a corncob pipe in a boxcar. Fuck them. Wrenched from foster homes across the country, teeth cut on whites at a tender age, these shitheads could really use some of your cash. We have the urge to do a lot of things, but only some stuff gets done, mostly for legality reasons. The dead bodies on the train tracks? That's not us. That's some local murderer the newspaper calls Dactyl. Or rather, that's what was signed at the bottom of a note the self-described janitor of souls submitted to the editors. This guy basically took credit for every unsolved homicide from the last decade, but it was so much bigger than him. Dactyl was just one more soldier in the unwar. The cops laughed at photos of his victims, mostly clipped from snapshots of other people. The dead girls looked weird whooping it up all alone, caught in a fuzzy moment stripped of context or friends. They weren't real pictures. Likely none never existed. The poor girls didn't go to school or the prom. They didn't drive. They mostly just went about their lives on a street where nobody looked. Peering out of a tuft of brush into a forest clearing, the illuminated husk of a convenience store below. Five white faces, cold with pink cheeks and noses. Warm breaths all in sync. Waiting for the call of their leader, a big boy, skinny, holding his concave chest bent comely like an insect or a wasp. Our bodies are empty, drained. We were only half there. Pulled up to the filling station, you could say. Given the signal, we break loose from dry branches and tumble down the hill. We break into the 7-Eleven, surprising the clerk inside, a kid just like us. No older, no smarter, only still fully human, still 100% alive. We suck his blood, yeah, but not before making a mess at the coffee station, sampling tins of meat and peaches, trying on sunglasses, touching each other in the back room. The boy loses consciousness about the time we get bored with our toys. Seth gives the signal to bail, but I slip away into the back again, stooping low to the ground looking for clues to my lost little baby, my beloved true love sister Kim, now gone these 15 months. She ran away from me in our fake family. I was real, though. I was a real person there, then, for her. We kept each other alive these long winters. Before break. <laughs> Before rushing into the night, I look for markings, etchings on the floorboards, hobo hieroglyphics, maybe, or a scrap of lace or strands of her long brown hair. But I find no trace, just old cans of engine oil and aprons and a bunch of name tags piled in an ashtray. 
None of the other boys understand. Maybe because it's hard for me to talk about and I end up not saying very much of anything. Instead, I communicate with Seth and certain other meaningful men through my touch, my kiss. Unlike most kids, I met my family when I was 12 years old. Kim was already living there, but didn't beat me by much. Dinner at our house went like this. Green salad, arguing, praying at bedtime. It wasn't so much that she ran away, she just clocked out. I left to go follow her. She wasn't going to get away that easily. I'd always been raised to believe that the truth was within me. Who the hell raised me anyway? Maybe this journey was a way to find out. It may sound weird, but I always have been aware of the fact we've always held close as a motivating factor that we can achieve greatness in our lifetimes. We're all part of that for each other. I'm pretty sure I was born in Arcata, California. I don't know how I became a foster kid. I often demanded of Seth, tell me where my real family is. He just shook his head. Your parents died when you were a little baby. They did not, I screamed. Thing is, in a dream, my mother visited me as an angel. My father visited me as an angel, each taking an opposite form. I sucked the life out of one while the other sucked the life out of me. But we'll get to that part way, way down the road. Till then, it's about beginnings. I busted out laughing. Beginnings? I said to no one in particular. What an arbitrary mess of a word. Let's dispense with all that misguided, imprecise, illusory, disingenuous terminology right off the bat. But it is about beginnings. I saw my first evisceration six miles back in the stockroom of a Coburg gas station. I guess you could say I'm beginning to like life on the road. But of course, no sooner have I said this than I step into the ladies' room of Chevron up on Good Pasture Loop. I was just done washing my hair in the sink when a man walked in. A surprise, the possibility of which I'd only ever played through my mind 8,000 times. And here it was. I stared at him through cold water in my eyes for what felt like a long time. Frozen with fear, I closed my eyes as he swallowed the distance between us. I made note of his nose breath on the back of my neck after he gathered my wet hair on top of my head in a fist ponytail. I opened my eyes just as Seth appeared in the doorway. What I didn't see were the exchange glances several minutes earlier in the trail mix aisle on the other side of the door between Seth and the man, who was a great deal older but not very much taller than me. What I've always found to be true is if two beings are tuned into the right frequency, then there is no need for anything else. Here, words would only cloud the poetry of what was about to commence. Only poised choreography and a certain inept longing filled the space. With effortless grace, the man yanked my skirt up over my butt while he simultaneously pushed my head down toward the sink. He was small and I barely noticed him. Back outside in the parking lot, I choked on my own glowering sadness, each sigh bringing more tears. Burrowing into my sweatshirt, I gummed a piece of candy with a mouth full of mucus as the other boys whooped and faked punched each other on the, in the stomach. I lose track of them. Each boy in our group all seemed to blend into one mechanical teen felon meathead in my mind. I'm only half affectionately looking out for them, bearing witness to the march of their pathetic, overdetermined lives. 
Since all the boys are a bit older than me, they've been out on their own, away from their families for a long time. They are legally men while I'm still a girl. I can't picture myself being anyway else. For now, I'm getting used to wearing the same clothes every day, eating ground-scored snacks and brushing my teeth with a bottle of tap water in the sand. I have agreed to show no signs of weakness. Thanks. So, thank you, Grace. Next up, we have got Josh, or I suppose Joshua Moore. Um, he has, he writes, he teaches writing in San Francisco. Uh, he also writes there, I presume. Um, I have learned that he keeps pet fish, and he likes his coffee black. So those are important things to know as, uh, as he's reading. Um, his first book, Some Things That Meant the World to Me, is the first thing I ever read from $2 Radio, and loved it. Um, and it was also on the San Francisco Chronicle bestseller list, so it's big time for a little press book, which is awesome. Um, so he is going to come up and do a little reading, and then um, once we're done, we can uh, maybe do the rest of the raffle and then do questions, or do questions and then raffle. I don't know. Whatever you like. We'll, we'll see what the mood is. Um, so without further ado, Joshua Moore. So I'm going to read from my uh, new book, Termite Parade. Uh, I'm going to read from the middle of the narrative. But all you really need to know in order to follow the excerpt is that the guy who's narrating this particular section is named Derek. And Derek has done something a wee bit despicable. Uh, so he's decided to flee San Francisco to go have a relaxing weekend in Reno, Nevada. Isn't it relaxing in Reno? Chapter is called Go Wombats, um, for reasons that will become pretty obvious as we're nearing the climax, and if the spirit or the muse moves you, and you feel the necessity to scream, Go Wombats, it will be totally appropriate. I still wasn't ready to go into a casino, wanting to get a few bourbons in me before I braved the whirling lights and farm boys on crystal meth and people slurping every cent from their welfare checks. Reno didn't get the same stature of customers as Vegas, more hillbillies than celebrities, more bounty hunters than paparazzi. I went into a small bar, played video poker, and slugged shots of wild turkey. There wasn't a woman in the whole place, just a bunch of horny lowlifes hunched over electric machines hoping to make a couple bucks. Just then the bar's front door opened. A team of men, a literal team. Fat guys wearing white sneakers and softball jerseys waddled in, screaming, to the victors go the spoils. I don't know about any spoils, the bartender said, but how about a couple free pitchers of beer? Clapping fat hands, white sneakers squeaking on the floor, men in softball jerseys high-fiving and whooping, Go wombats. <laughs> Awful mustaches between their noses and mouths like angry weeds. A couple even barked like dogs. The bartender poured three pitchers of beer, pulled chilled plastic mugs from a fridge and said, congrats on the game, boys. The whole team held up their draft beers howling, go wombats, and adjusting their baseball hats. Or were they called softball hats? 
<laughs> anyway, hats were adjusted, light beer was drunk. Suddenly, I wanted to throw up on my video poker machine, surrounded by all these wombats wearing jerseys and ejaculating pride. I went into the bathroom, which was one of those places that didn't have separate urinals for men to piss in. Just a huge trough we all had to belly up to. I pulled my cock out and dialed my voicemail. Two new messages. The first one was from Mired. People who are supposed to love each other are supposed to be there for the bad times. Right as I was erasing it, two wombats wobbled into the bathroom on their squeaky white sneakers. I stood at the middle of the trough, so one of them came up on either side of me. They pulled their pricks from their uniforms. One of them said, I never thought we'd beat those surly bastards. And the other said, we surely did just that. And his buddy said, we showed those sons of bitches who God is. And his friend said, no, no, we showed them who God was. Remember to watch your tenses. <laughs> then the other one said, yeah, yeah, thanks, professor. We aren't all lucky enough to teach the seventh grade. <laughs> While I eavesdropped, I played Meyer's next message. Where did you go? We need to talk. I erased it before I had to hear the rest. What are you doing? The wombat, situated on my left, said. I tucked the phone between my ear and shoulder. Who, me? Yeah, you. Who else might I be directing my question to? The other wombat leaned forward toward the trough so he could see us as we spoke. What's wrong, I said, letting my dick hang free and shutting the phone which I stuffed in my pocket. Well, I believe you peripherally relieved yourself on my shoe, he said. He do what now, professor? His friend said. No, no, he's already done it, professor said. You meant to say he's done what now? I meant what, his friend said. I didn't piss on anyone's shoe, I said. You most certainly did. Look. And he pointed to his right shoe right next to me. It didn't look wet. He said, you were talking on your phone, and you leaned back a little, and urine splashed all over my shoe. On whom's shoe had he pissed? His friend asked. Both of you be quiet and let me think, Professor said. I didn't piss on your shoe, man, I said, shaking the last couple drips and tucking it away. Maybe he did it, and I motioned to the other guy. Bruce, the professor said. I don't know his name. How could he urinate on my shoe from all the way over there? Superior aim? <laughs> Listen, the professor said. That gentleman standing next to you is my center fielder, Bruce. We carpool to work together. We're neighbors. Why would he urinate on my shoe? I'm not saying he pissed on your shoe, I said. I'm just saying I didn't. Actually, you are saying, to use your harsh parlance, that he pissed on my shoe. Because if you're saying you didn't, there's no one here except good old Bruce. Yeah, no one but Bruce, Bruce said. <laughs> If I did, it was an accident, I said, walking over to wash my hands. There's no if, sir. You did it, unequivocally. Sorry, I said. You don't sound sorry. The wombats had finished pissing and stood behind me. You sound unsorry, Bruce said. Shut up, I said. You want Bruce to shut up? 
Bruce said. Stay calm, gentlemen, the professor said. Then to Bruce, there's no such word as unsorry. And then to me, despite his diction, Bruce brings up a valid point. You don't sound sorry. You sound like you're only extending contrition to get out of this mess you've made. You sound like you think this is funny. So do you? Do you think this is funny? I dried my hands and threw the towel toward the trash can. Missed. I turned to leave. Good evening to you gents. The two wombats stood in my way. Answer me, please, the professor said. Is this funny? Bruce stuck his fingers out, weakly pushing me, pushing me like he knew he had a slew of softball backup. But otherwise, if it was just the two of us, he knew I'd kick his ass all over the bathroom. You got something to say to Bruce, Bruce said. And, and then I grabbed him. The lousy thing was I knew I was outnumbered no matter what, so I figured I'd go for an early knockout. Take care of these two without the other wombats knowing about it and get out of the bar as fast as I could. I hoped to overwhelm Bruce with my wily strength and he'd surrender and then I could take care of the professor. But Bruce wrestled back. I got my arms around him good, got them like this, one between his legs, one under an armpit, and I picked him up, pausing once he was in my arms. Pausing and thinking of the night, I dropped mired down the stairs. And as I held him thinking of her, the professor cold-cocked me right in the kidney. I fell over backward, and Bruce crash-landed on top of me. The professor ran to the door and said, We need every wombat in the place to come here right now. It's a motherfucking team emergency. <laughs> I heard the stampede of squeaking softball sneakers, and there I was on the floor underneath Bruce, a wombat, completely outnumbered. They barreled into the bathroom. The professor pointed at me and said, this gentleman has wronged not one, but two wombats. First, he micturated on my shoe. Then, he micturated? Some wombats asked. Micturated, urinated, pissed. This bozo whizzed on my shoe. Then he challenged old Bruce to a fight. One man stepped forward, maybe their manager, their best player. I don't know, but he was definitely in charge. Okay, there are two outs, he said. It's the bottom of the ninth. What are we going to do? We're going to play ball, the wombat said. I can't hear you, wombats. We're going to play ball, they said. Then let's play ball with this sorry son of a bitch, he said. Bruce wiggled off of me and the wombats leaned down and picked me up. They all pitched in, hoisting me in the air. Soon, I was as high as they could lift me. Like I was on their team and I'd done something amazing. Won a game in the final inning and salvaged a victory that seemed out of reach, but we pulled it out in the end. They cherished what I'd done because what I'd done was spectacular. I hadn't hurt anyone. I hadn't lied about it, hadn't run away to Reno or dodged phone calls, hadn't hated myself more than any other time in my life or felt the lousy termites ravage my organs. I was just another wombat enjoying a beer from a free pitcher, squeaking my white sneakers and fluffing my mustache. 
I was on the team and I'd done something wonderful and here we were a bunch of ecstatic wombats tearing up the town. But that wasn't why they held me up in the air. That actually wasn't what they had in mind at all. Because then the wombats dropped me into the trough. I landed on my back and kept my eyes closed and the urinal cakes jammed against my spine. I lay in there for 10 or 15 seconds before their salty softball trickles trickled all over me. I didn't even fight or squirm, no reason to just lay back and tried to cover my mouth with my hands. I imagined the trough filling up entirely with wombat piss and the bathroom filling too, and then Reno, and San Francisco, and every other sad American town. And then the whole world would disappear under an ocean of urine, and we'd all struggle, and we'd all drown, and I felt a type of lousiness I'd never known before. Thank you very much. Um, so we were, we were going to do uh, some questions too, but um, I'd heard that some interesting stories about kind of the genesis of, of Grace's novel, and I, I wanted to kind of extract it from her and make her talk with us a little bit about it. Because um, Eric, our, our publisher, told me that, that the book didn't actually start out to be kind of a full-length narrative at all, but it had started in a different form. Are you going to yeah. tell us a little about that? Yeah, well, at CalArts, um, one of my classmates was like... Uh, he was like a TV screenwriter and, and just kind of as a uh, almost a joke dare, I said I would write a TV pilot based on like Who? Uh, John Ross. Ah, okay. <laughs> He's a millionaire now. <laughs> um, uh, based on things that I kind of like would, would pick out of a hat. And one of them was like ancient Egypt high school. And then another, I didn't write that one. And then another one was this slutty teenage hobo vampire junkies, which he kind of combined two together. And he said, go on and go ahead and write that. And I'm like, okay, I will. <laughs> and when did, the, when did it, like a pilot or a TV medium not seem like it was going to be? Oh, and then, uh, you know, the more I was writing, the, you know, the more it seemed like uh, I should abandon, like, a script format. Yeah. And this is, I was writing in secret anyways. Nobody knew I was, I was writing this stuff until like a year later. Is your MFA is in fiction? It, well, CalArts, yeah, it was uh, writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's in critical studies. Critical studies. <laughs> yeah, well, when Were I came- Were you a thesis advisor? Yes, actually I was in Bruce's thesis class. That's right, and Lauren was there too. Um, and I started, yeah, I started at CalArts just writing nonfiction, so I didn't intend to write fiction at all there. Okay. And then it, it started as a short story or a novella, or you knew that it was going to be a novel the entire time? Uh, no, it was just a bunch of stuff, really. Okay. I had no, uh, yeah. It was just like a, just a big bag of right. words. <laughs> it's funny, because I always associate novelists as kind of being like the ultimate control freaks. If you think about it, we like... You know, we cast our projects, yeah. you know, we do the location scouting, we decide what they're wearing, like so on and so forth. We do, you know, we, we shoot it all ourselves. And the fact that you actually drew it out of a hat like that, and I think that's yeah. really amazing. I would never have the courage to do that. Well, I think it was important to have very limited uh, options in the beginning. Yeah. I don't know if you use this as well, but like, 
only giving yourself so many options for what you can write about. Hmm. You know, the Ulipo had we're onto something, I think, with constraints. Sure. You know, you know that about makes, that stuff. I do. That makes sense. Yeah. Did anybody want to fire any questions our way? Allie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you so you started out wanting to write nonfiction, was this project your first kind of foray into fiction? Yeah, it was. Yeah, when it, yeah, I hadn't written any fiction since one class, like as an undergrad, and um, that's why I was writing it in secret because it was not officially what I was writing there. So I think that's good to do that sometimes. So like keep it under wraps until, you know, it, it like has its own identity so it's not so easily tampered with by the workshop environment. Can you talk, do you want to talk about the workshop? What did they, what did they think you were doing? <laughs> oh, I was writing, I don't know, just like stuff about mini bear. I was writing about small bears. I was writing about small bears and <laughs> stuff. Are those in no, no. Yeah, Twin that. Peaks kind of, you know, like eulogies for dogs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but CalArts, I think, indulged everything. It was like, you could do anything. Yeah. I can't even remember some of that other stuff. Oh, and then like excessive rockers. That's kind of, you know, that made it into the novel, you know. Yeah. Lou Reed's real like low period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Should we go have a drink? Well, I feel like I feel like Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Someone's keeping us on task. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of turning point or a commitment, I would think. Oh, yes. Well, uh, you know, yeah, after that initial chunk of time, which was about eight months of just, you know, writing without anything in mind of, like, being accountable for what I was writing, I think. Uh, at, at that point, I started just kind of compiling it into, like, you know, 30-page excerpts that I did bring in, you know, to the official, you know, workshop sphere. And then, um, you know, then whatever anybody said about it, at least it wouldn't, like, sway it, you know, and influence it too much. Did I answer your question, John Paul? Okay. <laughs> yeah, man. When you're writing something like Drowning in Urine. Sure. <laughs> what is that like for you? Is it so Drowning in Urine? <laughs> No, I mean, as a writer, because it's so well-written, and, and you really create that bathroom and that sense of hysteria. Is that, is that, does that come quickly? Is it something you linger in? Is it, because that, it, it was very well-written. Oh, thanks. I, I think that's a really interesting idea, too. I, I wonder if some of it's, like, narrative strategy. You want to think about your characters almost kind of being, like, method actor. You want to, like, really shove them into that three-dimensional space and do everything you can to kind of render that in a way that a reader is going to be able to experience on a sensory level, not just what it's going to kind of look like, but some of the kind of the ickier things that would be going on in a tableau like that as well. I think a lot of that stuff is just rewrites. I had an experience in the Miami airport where a guy told me that he thought I pissed on his shoe, uh, which is absurd. And then it was like, oh, maybe I, can, maybe I can use that as a trigger. I didn't piss on his shoe. I pissed all over his leg, for God's sakes. Uh, but I thought that might be an interesting kind of conduit into, into something that um, 
would get out of the kind of the heart of the story because when you have a character that's kind of as savage as, as this guy Derek is, the the trigger point that I have to the pressure I have to apply to him to get him to do what I need him to do is pretty extreme. The other characters would have folded earlier, uh, kind of in the process of the sequence of events, but he is. Um, I mean, kind of such a hostile, and reckless person. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he tells about a third of the story, and his girlfriend tells part of it, and his twin brother tells a component of it as well. Now, if I remember right, I mean, your, uh, your first novel, there's sort of a, a similar trigger to that at the very beginning of that. I know you didn't read from the beginning of this, but um, Rhonda, the character, I'm trying to remember how it goes. Yeah, the, then my first book, the guy goes home with this hooker and he thinks like, woohoo, I'm going to have the time of my life, he ends up wetting her bed. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah this is yeah, yeah. a trigger to, to demonstrate something about his personality. So uh, the first two <laughs> books are like the first two of three that are all kind of related and they've got all kind of this series of mapping and images that are all kind of similar going on throughout the throes of the book. Buren. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's all set in the same street in San Francisco in the fall of 2007, and all sorts of shenanigans ensue from there. Yeah. I just also want to point out that Byron um, dates one of her ex-boyfriends. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So maybe I need to get on the get on the couch and talk a little bit about your Is that what you're telling me? I think Bataille would have something yeah. to say about that. I think so too. I think so too. There wasn't though. It was good. So you're working on the It's done. It's done. It's done. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's my go-to move. Gonna just get good at one thing, right? That's what I'm gonna do. That's gonna be my shtick. Kissing books. Um, it was really, it was really cool. I did that my my first year of grad school, and then for a year and a half afterward. And it was all men and women that were between four to eight weeks out of prison, so they're kind of freshly back out into the world. It's a population that is, you know, really understimulated in terms of their creative outlets. People are kind of trying to stay away from them in general, let alone asking them if they want to write stories or creative nonfiction or poems. Uh, so I had a really great time in that experience, and actually a lot of the writing that I got in there is better than some of the classes I do at, at USF and stuff. The really cool thing about that class, too, is that we would do a, a reading every quarter at this local playhouse in the Mission, and it was like a mandatory house event, so everybody who lived at the halfway house had to come, and they got to share their artwork with, you know, 120 or 150 other recovering addicts, so it was a really rewarding time, for sure. What's next to you, Grace? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm working on a, a, another book, historic, historical romance with nightmares. <laughs> Can't say too much about it, but yes. <laughs> it's, you, have you actually started drafting? Uh, oh, yeah, I've been working on it for like three years already. Okay. You know, it's, it, it's going, but... Uh, fiction? Okay. Yeah, fiction. Not a memoir. <laughs> so, it's uh, it's the 1870s Central Coast of California. You know, California is very interesting. You know, intriguing to me to write about. So, was this secret for a while too? Oh yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you gotta. Yeah. Yes, you gotta. You gotta. Did you lose another start that one or? what? Oh. This one, uh, I started writing like a novelization of a song, and then yeah, well, the song's by Divine Horseman. Christie was 
the singer of that band, <laughs> and um, and it's called Past All Dishonor. And then I realized that Past All Dishonor is all, it's already a book. It's a James and M. Kane book about like antebellum. It's like a weird noir, antebellum noir. And I was like, oh, damn, I know I can't really write. You know, it's like it's already been written. But I moved forward from that anyway, so I'm still writing that. But I like the idea of writing a novelization of, of a song or cover of a song. I like that song. <laughs> oh, are you okay? Oh, no problem. Thank you. I think we all have to leave. Um, thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it. And whether, whether or not you pick up Grace's book or my book, make sure that you buy something from Skylight because these guys are independent and cool and they really need our help. So thanks a lot. Yeah. been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.